Last week, uh, we, we started this series, as, as Zan mentioned, our big assignment. Uh, there's a passage from a letter that, the Paul, that Paul wrote, the church that he planted in Corinth, and in it he wrote them. He wrote, though I am free and I belong to no one, I make myself a slave to everyone, to win as many as possible. To the Jews, I became like a Jew to win the Jews. To those under the law, I became like one under the law. Though I myself am not under the law, so as to win those under the law. To those not having the law, I became like one not having the law, though I am not free from God's law, but am under Christ's law, so as to win those not having the law. To the weak, I became weak to win the weak, that I become all things to all people, so that by all possible means I might save some. I do all this for the sake of the gospel that I may share in its blessings. And for me, especially, especially if you're familiar with the Enneagram, we talk about that around here. I'm an Enneagram 3 with a two-wing, uh, with my personality, with my temperament, uh, because of my coming to faith in Jesus was so dramatic and so life-changing. This passage has in some ways been like a life passage for me personally and in ministry. And because of the way I would have described it when I first accepted the call to ministry, was I, I can't wait to spend the rest of my life helping as many people as possible know and follow Jesus. But what I discovered after jumping into ministry with both feet into full-time ministry when I was 27, when it comes to leading and operating a church, we can easily get caught up in the, the machinery and the organization and the programming and doing church. And before long, all of our time and energy and money goes towards maintaining this thing. And then whether or not it's successful, doesn't really matter anymore because we've got to maintain the thing. And last week I shared one of my biggest concerns for us as a young church is that we would become just another organization, that we would become just another institution, and not really focused on doing what we've been called to do, that we would forget or that we would lose sight of our individual responsibility as a church and each of us individually, for those of us that follow Jesus, to lead people into a growing relationship with Jesus, or as we say around here, to help people find and follow Jesus. Because the gravitational pull of any church is to the inside. The gravitational pull is to get entirely focused on attending and making the weekend experience and making the events happen, while losing sight of God's clear calling for those of us who would say, I'm a Christian, I'm a Jesus follower, that we would lose sight of that calling that each of you, each of you and I as individuals are plugged into the lives of people who are outside of the faith, that we would be involved in their lives in such a way that the time would come that they would give an ear to listen and that you would take personal responsibility for leading someone to a faith in Christ, and then following up with them and helping them to learn and grow as they mature as a new believer. And it's easy to lose sight of this. And the reason why is because it is a very, very difficult challenge. It is so difficult and intimidating that most Christians just don't do it. In fact, if you're really honest, many of you, you you've not done that. You've been Christians or been in church for a long time, but, it, but to be honest, you can point to all sorts of things that you have done for the church and in the church, and for the record, that means something. It means more than you know. It matters more than you know. You can point to those things, but you can't point to a person who you were personally and intentionally responsible for helping them come to Christ. And truthfully, because you know it takes time and energy and there are no guarantees and it's complicated at times, you couldn't really point to a person today 
who you are praying for specifically and consistently and investing in intentionally in order to see them come to Christ. You, you know a lot of lost people, family members, co-workers, friends, neighbors, students, a lot of people who are outside of the faith, but you couldn't say, you know, there's this person who I pray for almost every night because I've just got this burden. I've got this burden for them to come to Christ. And the reason isn't, the reason isn't because you don't believe in or don't love God. It's because it's hard work and it's intimidating. There's no guarantee, so consequently we just tend to avoid it. But here's the deal. This is the thing that God has left us here to do. This is the thing that we are called to do. And if we're going to be a blessable church, an ecclesia, a blessable movement of people, we have to be about our Father's business. We've got to be organized and budgeted and strategized and staffed and volunteered with one thing in mind. And that is to see people who don't know Christ come to know Him and grow in maturity. That's why we started New Life. And that's, that's why what we are about is hard. And that to see people become disciples who make disciples, a disciple being someone who has an increasing prevailing faith and selfless love, that when it comes to decisions, we make moral decisions, decisions about how we live, our words, our actions, how we handle our sexuality and our sexual desires, how we handle money and wealth, how we handle uh, frustration and anger, that we would have a prevailing faith that would guide every and inform every decision, and then a selfless love when it comes to how we act and how we react towards others and how we treat others and how we do relationships and ultimately help people to know about Jesus and to place the entire weight of their life and their eternity on Him. And last week I gave a very specific assignment to anyone who placed, uh, has placed their hope in Jesus and is a follower of Jesus. And for some of you, it was a bit intimidating. And the assignment was to cultivate a relationship with at least one person outside of the faith to lead them to Christ and then meet with them for one year in some sort of format. And this past week, I had a couple people ask, but, but okay, how? Like, how, what is the first step? And I get it. We've got two more weeks of this discussion. And, and to help us, we're going to take a, a, we're going to learn a lesson from the master convincer himself, Jesus. Because imagine if your responsibility was to convince people that you're God. Okay? That was Jesus' task. And the crazy thing is, he pulled it off. When his life was over, there was a handful of people who had spent time with him heard all that he had said and done, and they said, we came to realize that that man was not just from God and not just a teacher of God. He was in a unique way the Son of God, that he was equal to, that he was God in a body. Even his own brother was convinced, his half-brother James. And imagine how difficult would it be for your brother or your sister to, get, to convince you they were God. Yet at the end of his life, James, the brother of Jesus, faced with having stones thrown at him, striking him again and again and again until he was dead, he went to that kind of death because he said, I can't recant. I, 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 I can't. I saw him die. I saw him buried. I saw him alive again. Do with me what you want. But my half-brother was the Son of God. And that is so powerful. And Jesus modeled for us, and He has called us to convince people. God has commissioned you, and He's commissioned me, if you're a Christian, 
to go share with and convince people about this good news. And if you're here and you're, or you're listening online and you're not a Christian and you go, this is one of the things that drives me crazy about Christians. They're always trying to tell me how to believe or what to think or, or believe something. Just, just hang on because we're going to talk about that. But as Christians, we have been commissioned to be convincers. But unfortunately, our methods, our approach, and our posture too often have been wrong or misguided. And as a result, and this grieves me as a pastor, as a result, the reputation of the church and the Lord Jesus in this city, in churches all around the world, is far from what Christ's reputation was among people who didn't believe and among people we would consider outsiders. So today, Jesus is going to help us with that. And I'm going to give you five statements, and I almost never ask you to take notes. But you need to take these down. Just jot them on a notepad on your phone or take a screenshot or take a picture of the screen. But I'd like you to have these down then later this week somewhere where you can see them. Because if you have loved ones, if you have friends or family or coworkers or fellow students, people you want to see come to Christ, this is an inside look into how Jesus, how Jesus accomplished convincing people of something far more difficult than what he's asking you to convince people of. Now, the first thing that Jesus did was he positioned himself as a servant. Jesus acted and worked and functioned among the people, postured as a servant. He said, whoever wants to be great among you must be your servant. Whoever wants to be first must be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. The Son of God who deserved to be served, who deserved to have everyone's undivided attention, said, "Though even though I'm God in a body, I'm here to serve. And he did. He washed feet. He fed people. He stood in the sun hour after hour after hour, teaching and encouraging and healing. And at times, people lined up so far beyond what you could see. And he'd spent time, hours healing. The disciples would be like, hey, Jesus, we've been here for a long time. Let's just, let's call it quits. Send these people home. And that he would just care for and heal and heal. And he never used, ever used all of that power for himself. He never enriched himself with his power or used it for personal gain. Instead, Jesus took all of that power that was in him as God, and he directed that and focused it on other people as a servant. The second thing he did is that he functioned as a shepherd. This is Jesus speaking. He said, I am the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays his life down for his sheep. Jesus says, yes, I am a leader. I'm a leader, but I'm a different kind of leader. I'm a shepherd leader. A shepherd is someone who cares for and nurtures and, and, and tunes into and protects and is sensitive to the needs of the sheep. And Jesus says, if you want to know what kind of leader I am and how I want to relate to you as my followers, don't think of me as a boss. Don't think of me as a king. Don't think of me as a judge. Think of me as a shepherd, as a leader, as a leader who cares deeply for the benefit and the well-being of the sheep. And that's how we're to function as a shepherd. He was never demanding. He never put people down. Except for the hyper-religious leaders who were constantly using their position and power over people for their own benefit. Jesus used all that God-in-a-body power to shepherd and care for people. The third thing He did was He related as a friend. Look what He says. Jesus says, I no longer call you servants. 
Because a servant does not know his master's business, but instead, I've called you friends. And everything that I have learned from my Father, I've made known to you. In other words, yeah, you're my disciples. Yeah, I'm God in Abad. But when it's just you and me, and when we talk, yes, I've got rank, I've got position. But when it's just us, think of me as a friend. This is, there's this powerful scene in the New Testament you're likely familiar with. His good friend Lazarus has died. Jesus knows that in just a few minutes, he's going to raise Lazarus from the dead. And this whole scene is going to turn around. And, and everyone is going to be so incredibly happy. Yet when Jesus walked to that place outside his friend's tomb and saw all the mourners crying for Lazarus, Jesus, he paused in the moment. And we're told Jesus wept. And he wept so profusely that the people watching him said, see how he loved Lazarus. Even knowing, knowing what he was about to do, he paused and just let himself be in the pain of the moment with everyone else, many of whom were his friends. And he he acted like a friend acts because Jesus wanted people to see him and embrace him as a friend. That's why you would always find him in the marketplace or the temple or the synagogue or the streets or the, the homes. Wherever people were, that's where Jesus was at because he related to people as a servant and a shepherd and a friend. And as a result, Jesus attracted sinners, which is really kind of amazing because Jesus was clearly from God. He was perfect in every way. And aren't perfect people typically annoying and when, but when, and it's like when people interact with me and, uh, you know, for the first time, and then they find out I'm a pastor, suddenly their demeanor changes, they get nervous, they clean up their language, they don't tell the same jokes, and they apparently feel compelled to tell me all about their church attendance over the last five years. So it just gets weird and it gets uncomfortable when they find out I'm a pastor. But for some reason, the way Jesus carried himself, even though people knew that he lived a much higher standard than they've ever lived. And they knew he didn't agree with much of their lifestyle, yet they weren't put off by him. They weren't intimidated. There was something about Jesus that drew these kind of people. One of the best examples is in the book of Matthew. It's Matthew 9, verse 9. As Jesus went on from there, he saw a man named Matthew sitting at the tax collector's booth. Now, Matthew was a Jew, but he was a traitor because he had enriched himself and the Romans at his people's expense. Jesus says, follow me. He told him. And Matthew got up and he followed him. And then later, they're having dinner at Matthew's house and many tax collectors and sinners came to eat with him. And the disciples, they're having this party with all the sinners and the religious people are just totally confused. When the Pharisees saw this, they asked his disciples, why? Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? And on hearing this, Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. You go learn, religious leaders, what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And then look at this. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. The amazing thing to not miss is Jesus was comfortable with sinners, and sinners were comfortable with Jesus. And we need to let that sink in. One day Jesus is having lunch with the Pharisees. They want to ask him some hard questions in the middle of the meal. And this is one of my favorite moments in the New Testament. He's sitting there and he feels something by his feet. He looks down and here's this woman, this prostitute who has come in unnoticed and she's crept down beside Jesus and she just wants to wash his feet. She's wetting his feet with her tears and wiping his feet with her hair. It is one of the most dramatic moments 
in all of the New Testament. There's just so much emotion, so much incredible humility and affection. And the Pharisee, the religious person, says, I can't believe you would let someone like that touch you. And in her heart, she knows he's holy. In her heart, she knows he's a holy man, and yet she was attracted to Jesus. And then not long after, in such a powerful moment on the cross, remember, here's this thief, but he wasn't just a thief. They didn't, hang, they didn't crucify thieves. He was a hardened criminal that couldn't even be trusted to row in a Roman galley. The only thing they could do was kill him. And he's hanging on a cross next to Jesus. And there is something about Jesus, even on the cross, that gave this man the courage to look his way and say, I have nothing to offer. I can only ask. Jesus, would you remember me when you come into your kingdom? And Jesus said, yes. Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. A person and people that the religious system considered outcasts. There was just something about Jesus that attracted them to him. The last one is when Jesus spoke, he spoke with authority. When Jesus spoke, look at what it says. The crowds were amazed at his teaching. Because he spoke as one who had authority and not as their teachers of the law. Here's why. Because Jesus' message was a part of him and he was a part of the message. He and the message were one. And when he spoke about God, it's as if he knew God. When he spoke about faith, it was a faith that he demonstrated. And when he talked to people, they could tell it's not just words. There's genuine compassion. And when he talked about religion and all the same topics that the other teachers talked about, there was something different about it because there was authenticity and it was from his heart. And they were like, we don't know if we understand and we're not sure if we believe all of it, but there's something about the way that he talks that I want to know more. And that's how Jesus pulled it off as a convincer who has called us to convince. He positioned himself as a servant. He functioned as a shepherd. He related as a friend. And he spoke with authority. Everybody knew he was for real. He believed it. He lived it. And what we learn from Jesus is that. That is what you and I are called to be and called to do. That's the convincing lifestyle. The lifestyle in which a person might say to me, Chad, I'm I'm not sure I believe it all, but I know you believe it. And I'll tell you something else. Even though... You know that I don't believe what you believe. I've never felt judged by you. In fact, I, I can tell you care about me. That you love me. I genuinely matter to you as a person. That was Jesus' method. That's how he was able to convince people. He served, he shepherded, he befriended, he attracted sinners, and he spoke authentically from the heart. I mean, think about it. The religious leaders crucified Jesus. But who flocked to him? The outsiders. The irreligious people. People who had been pegged as sinners and outcasts. And here's what I believe. I believe this with all of my heart. That if you and I will embrace Jesus' method, we will be a church where Anyone and everyone who's done whatever, however many times, who may not buy what we believe, they would be able to come into our community, whether it's here on a Sunday morning, whether it's during the week at an event, iron and ale, girls' night, galentines, whatever it is, that they would come into those situations and feel loved and feel accepted. They would feel like, I can belong before I believe. 
and they would become open to the gospel. And if Jesus' method becomes part of your lifestyle and mine, the hardest, most non-interested, non-believing person over time, if you will serve them, if you will befriend them and shepherd them, and when they sense that you don't condemn them, even though they know you don't agree with things in their lifestyle, when you finally open your mouth to speak about your faith, they will know it is authentically coming from the overflow of your heart towards them. And God will use that to bring people into His kingdom. So here's what I want us to do, because Jesus said, go do this. If you don't remember anything else today, I just want to give you two words that summarize and encapsulate everything that I've said. So this is our opportunity, our assignment as individual participants of this church. So I just want you to say these two words together out loud, invest and invite. Say it together, invest and invite. You know what God wants you to do? He wants you to invest your life in the life of unbelievers. That's what He wants you to do. You know what investing means? It means serving, shepherding, befriending. Don't condemn them. And then talk about your faith in ways that are relevant to them. And authentically from your heart. That's what Jesus did. That's what those handful of followers did right after Jesus departed this earth and it changed the world. That's what He wants you and I to do. And over time, this is the method. It's His method combined with the work of the Holy Spirit that convinces people. The other thing that I want you to do is I want you to invite. And let me explain this the best way I can. When people were in the presence of Jesus, it was powerful and it was convincing. I mean, Andrew ran and he got Peter. He found Peter. He's like, Peter, we found the Messiah. He's like, how do you know? Just come and see Him. And they drag Peter and he meets Jesus like, oh, he's the one. Or a Samaritan woman, she's got five husbands and no reputation. She runs into town, she tells the whole town, the Messiah, he's here, he's out there by the well. Well, how do you know? You just got to go and meet him. And then you'll see, so they did. And it's like, whoa, he is the real deal. And over and over again, when people came into the presence of Jesus, it was powerful and it was convincing. Now listen, theologically, this goes very deep. I do not have the time to spend on it here. There's something powerful about being in the presence of the body of Christ, which is described as the church, the ecclesia. There's something powerful about being in the presence of the body of Christ, functioning as the body of Christ. It is more powerful and convincing to be with the body of Christ than it is to just be with you. Because you're just one part of a larger body. And, and, and more than that, I've heard new lifers tell me that uh, they just worked and worked to get this friend or this family member to come and join them and just experience this community, and they finally bribed them enough or got them to come reluctantly. I actually, or they tricked them, but, they, but then they left saying, wow, that wasn't what I, experienced, what I expected I would experience. You know that guy spoke? He wasn't horrible. Um, there was just something different about this environment. Like, I'd, I'd go again. I'd kind of like to go again. I'm open to that because there's something powerful and dynamic about being part of the body of Christ or around the body of Christ. So I want you to start inviting people as part of your strategy. And listen, this isn't about making our church bigger. Do I want it to get bigger? I do. But that's not what this is about. In fact, you don't even have to invite them to this church, and I mean that. 
This is not about this is not about inviting them to a church service. It's about inviting them to experience the body of Christ in a way that connects with them. Another advantage is if, if I can get a friend who's not a church person, not a believer, to go to an event with me, after that event, the communication level, it just goes to another level because it's so much easier to talk about Christ in personal terms once a person has experienced the body of Christ. It just moves the conversation up a notch. And many of you, you can attest to that in your own life. So that's why we work to create environments to make it as easy as possible for you. That's why we do like New Life at the Highlands and Iron and Ale events and Galentine's and we've done a marriage night and Halloween at the Highlands. We love the Highlands. Father-Child Day. We've got a chicken and pickle night coming up in a couple weeks that we'll be sharing with you. And it's just an opportunity. It's an opportunity for you, obviously, to connection points and community. But more than that, it's an opportunity to invite people to say, so that they can come and, and walk away and go, wow, they're not completely weird. Like, I just, they didn't handle snakes, nobody passed out. I mean, we're not weird. And for, for people who are outside of the church and outside of the faith to go, you know, that it kind of looks like a bunch of normal people. I don't necessarily believe all that they believe, but they clearly do. And I, I kind of expected that I'd come and people be like, are you sure you should be here? This is like a church event. But I didn't experience any of that. In fact, the opposite. It's like they went out of their way to make sure that I felt like I belonged. I didn't think that would happen. That, that is how part of how God begins to crack that shell and create inroads into their heart. And it's through investing and inviting. And, and let me say this again. If you've got a friend or a neighbor or a friend at work or another student and you know of another church that would be a better environment for them to experience the body of Christ, take them. Listen, I know we don't always get it right. We're still in a university building. It's kind of sterile and academic. We've got horrible acoustics. Uh, we've certainly got a style of music and preaching, and sometimes the kids' life check-in malfunctions, and we're still rough around the edges, and sometimes I talk too long, and it's like 80% of the people don't get here till the end of the second song. And like, listen, I get it. Like, we're, we're always looking to be better and engage with you and with our guests. And we will get better. But if you've got someone that will engage with you at another church, do it and don't come back if that's what it takes. Because this is not about more people here. It's about the person in your life who needs to know Jesus and a strategy that works. That if you invest and invite and have the opportunity to invite and you follow through with that invitation, it takes that conversation, that relationship to a new level. And again, there's just something huge about watching people authentically worship God and relate to and love one another and have fun with one another. It just breaks through the hardest of hearts. So if you consider New Life your church home, this is your assignment to invest and invite. That is that a few weeks from now, you should be able to walk up to me at any point and say, okay, Chad, give me their initials. There needs to be someone. And I can come to you and go, okay, who are you investing in? And you can name a name. Are you intentionally investing your life in someone else's with this agenda? Because let's be clear, we have an agenda. Let me tell you our agenda. If you're a follower of Jesus, your agenda should be Christ's agenda. And his agenda was he came to seek and save that which was lost. He came that we might have life and have it more abundantly. He came so that we could understand what God is really about. 
And he came so that we might have eternal life. He came purely for the sake of other people. And I know some of you might want to push back and say, Chad, we should make people projects. I agree. That is not what I'm saying. But let's be clear. Jesus did not just come to this earth to make friends to, for making, the sake of making friends. Did he? He clearly and unapologetically came with an agenda, and his agenda has to be our agenda. And if we are the kind of Christians we ought to be, then we will be investing in and inviting others, and it will be for their sake, not ours. Because Jesus came to give the cure for every person's three big problems. Do you know what your three big problems are? It's not the people that came with you today. It's, 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 your three big problems are sin, sorrow, and death. And Jesus says, listen, follow me, trust me, because I have the cure for all three. The whole reason I am here is so that you can have and so that you can experience the cure. And then he handed that responsibility off to the church. He handed it off to us, entrusting it to you and to me. And if we truly have the answer to sin, sorrow, and death, and we aren't willing to share it with other people, then we are the most ungrateful, self-centered, selfish people in the world. And that may sound harsh, but it's true. And I'm not pointing fingers. I'm saying this to myself as well. I'm looking in the mirror and making it true of all of us that would say we follow Christ. I want to invite the band up as I wrap this up with a story. Mother Teresa. Most of you know the name. I don't know how much you know about her story, but when she first went to Calcutta, in the middle of the land of the Hindu religion, it was just opposite poles. And they're trying to bring Christianity into this culture that is completely antagonistic to Christianity. There's no common ground. And one of the first projects that they embraced in 1952 was to turn a formal, former hotel that was next to a Hindu temple and turn it into a place for the poor of Calcutta who often died alone in the streets. And they wanted to turn it into a place where they could spend their last hours in comfort and cleanliness. So they buy this place right next to a Hindu temple, and they, all they want to do is go out into the streets and bring in dying people, children and older men and women, uh, to, to bring them in and then hold them while they die. I mean, talk about a calling. And the sisters faced alienation and hostility, Plus, the Hindu religion is such, and you'll think I'm making this up, but I'm not. But it's such that if you're dying of some disease, you deserve it. Because they believe in karma. They believe in reincarnation. And if, in their way of thinking, if a child is dying in the streets, well, they're supposed to be dying in the streets. And if you interfere, you mess up their karma. And then the next time around is going to be worse for them. So better just let them get all the suffering they need to get out in this life so the next life will be better. So when the people in the hospital were diagnosed with a terminal disease, instead of letting them die in the hospital, they would go put them on the street. And the temple priests even asked the city authorities to relocate the hospice. But, but then one of the Hindu priests, one of the persecutors, was found to have advanced stages of tuberculosis. So they said, well, you're dying. You can't stay in here. You're out. And they put him out on the street. But these sisters, they find him, they collect him, and this representative of the enemies of the sisters ended up in the corner of the hospice tended by Mother Teresa herself. And when the priest died, she actually delivered his body to the temple for Hindu rites. 
And when news of this charity got out into the city, Calcutta started its long love affair with these humble sisters. Now that's powerful. I just imagine these ladies in their, you know, blue outfits, you know, making their daily trek down the street, and they're like, hey, that's the guy. That, that's one of the guys that tried to get us thrown out. And they pick him up. And Mother Teresa herself holds her enemy in her arms until he dies. And then takes his body to his colleagues. And I just think Jesus is going, yes. Somebody finally got it. Somebody finally got it right. Somebody finally understands it's about shepherding and befriending and not condemning. And it's about when you speak, speak from your heart. It's about a lifestyle. And the whole city eventually in the world opened up because of one simple, extraordinary act of kindness. That's Jesus' way. It's got to be my way. It's got to be your way. And then in following the example of those first followers of Jesus, the ones who changed the world, who showed us the process of getting the, the good news to the people He has put in our lives. It's investing and inviting. And if we'll do this, if we'll take Jesus' approach and the approach of our spiritual ancestors, the people of this city and in your life will experience new life. And someday, they're going to tell their story and they'll name you as someone God used to utterly change their life. And I so want that for you. And so does your Heavenly Father. Let me pray for us. Father, I am speaking for myself. I'm so thankful to you for the people you put in my life that they had the courage to invest in me, even though I was very, very difficult and still am. Had the courage to invite me and that you used them. And I pray for every one of us, Father, that everyone listening to my voice, that we would say, we believe in you. We believe in your Son, and we're seeking to follow him. That, Father, that you would give us the courage and the words and the discernment to do what needs to be done to reach the people that you've put in our lives. And that you would begin to create stories within this community people having the courage to do that and the people they're reaching out to and investing in responding. That your Holy Spirit would lead to a heart level response for the people that we connect with, that we invest in, that we serve. Father, thank you for the people you brought into our lives. Thank you for this community. And Father, I pray that you continue to build your church and that we would see you do great things in this city especially again in such a time where there's just so much pain and division and angst and unfriending and literally friends and family members not speaking to each other anymore. And I pray, God, that you would use us and use your church to bring healing and unity and hope. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.